be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 31, our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible your own and a gift from the Lord. Psalm 31 was probably written by David associated with the rebellion of his son Absalom against him when his son not only endeavored to overthrow David as the king of Israel and David was God's chosen man for um, all of his flaws and all of his mistakes like uh, everybody, God had chosen him to be the king of Israel And God would replace him with the son of his choosing. But Absalom decided he wanted to overthrow his father. And more than overthrow his father, uh, as the king of Israel, he wanted also to kill him. So David probably writes this psalm as an older man. And uh, he's at that time in life where you think, well, I'm, you know, on the final stretch a little bit. And uh, here I am. I'm the king. And I've got resources in my life in terms of power, in terms of wealth that's been accumulated and saved. And so my life, as far as I can look out into the future, is going to be one of relative peace and enjoying kind of uh, the fruits of a life of hard work and walking with the Lord. So that's his anticipation related to old uh, old age for him. And then one day he wakes up and he's completely surprised by it. Had no inkling that his son was going to do this. It was a carefully kept secret. And one day he goes from being the most powerful man in that part of the ancient world to literally running for his life with the remainder of his family and a few close friends out into the Judean uh, wilderness. And it teaches us how quickly things can change uh, in this world where we think it's going to go one way and then boom, and overnight uh, life takes a completely different turn and we realize we need God in every age as much as we ever needed Him in an earlier age. And in this psalm, we uh, learn once again the power and the importance of praise being directed toward the Lord in time of trial. Now, one of the things we notice, some of you may say, okay, wait a second, what's the date? Because we talked about this last week in another psalm, didn't we? Yes, but I love repetition, and I'm thankful that the Lord does too. But anyway, the point is, is that very often in these psalms, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but in terms of their grouping within the book of psalms, sometimes they're grouped in terms of their subject matter. So you might have several psalms that are grouped together with the same theme so that as we're reading the psalms, we're reading the same theme from a little slightly different angle. Even if the psalms were absolutely identical and God chose to just simply include another psalm that says exactly the same thing as the psalm said two psalms before, I'm great with that. Because here's the way that I think we, look, we should look at it. 
and that is if he is repeating something, even verbatim, it must mean that it's something that's very important for us to have repeated to us. And sometimes we can sit and we can listen to something or read something and our eyes are kind of glossed or our mind is somewhere else and we've, you know, kind of flit over it. And then God says, no, I'm going to repeat this and I'm going to repeat this several times so that my people understand that this is really important. So God never, ever wastes his breath. He never, unlike me or uh, most people in the world, never wastes not a single word. So when he repeats himself, it's very, very significant. These psalms, we read them. And we read them in kind of the quietness of our own relationship with the Lord very often in our devotional life with the Lord as we begin the day and all. But these psalms were sung. They were, again, the uh, Hebrew uh, hymnal of the Old Testament. So everything in these psalms, these were art, these truths and this worship was articulated verbally to the Lord. And one of the things that this psalm teaches us, as we've seen in a couple of other psalms, is the importance of verbalizing out loud praise and worship to the Lord. There's something about we can, we can be thinking something between us and the Lord. We can be processing something between us and the Lord. But if you take that processing of a trial or of a difficulty with the Lord and you cease dealing with it silently and you start to talk about to God out loud concerning the issue, a completely different dynamic occurs. We're more focused on what it is that we're saying. Uh, we, we realize that what we're in a conversation with God. We're not drifting in and out of it. And so the importance of verbalizing our praise, verbalizing our worship to the Lord, and especially in the midst of trials, giving Him worship, giving Him praise. Why? Reason number one and supreme reason is He's always worthy of it. I may be unconscious of how worthy He is of it because I feel like I'm being overwhelmed by the trial at the moment. But no matter what the trial is, He is always worthy of our praise. So we don't praise Him as a manipulation technique to then get something out of Him for ourselves. But we, there is a benefit. We never do anything for God or, or do anything that God has called us to do, except that it's also very good for us. So we worship Him and we praise Him in the middle of trial. We do so out loud. Some of you are in the middle of tremendous trial in this room tonight, and you have praised the Lord out loud, and it has affected you in how you see the trial. So it's good for God, it's a blessing to God, but it's good for us. Because when we praise the Lord, we praise Him for something. We praise Him for His power. Well, if I praise Him for His power, then I am now processing the trial that I am in the middle of in the light of His power. That brings perspective to me in that trial. If I praise Him as we've done tonight for His love, now I'm processing the trial that I'm in the middle of in the light of the 
the greatness of His love. If I praise Him for His faithfulness, then that realization that He is always faithful now begins to impact me and how I'm viewing my trial uh, in, in the light of His faithfulness. And so what happens is little by little as we worship Him and give Him praise verbally, little by little, we begin the praise so often of the Lord. The trial is like uh, Godzilla and King Kong in those Japanese movies where they're just wiping out one city after another. The trial's like the blob that ate St. Louis. Talk about those really crummy old science fiction uh, movies when the people would talk in the words that are like this, it's four second delay on everything. But the trial is just eating up everything in sight. And then, and we begin to praise the Lord. And the longer we praise the Lord for who and what He is, now we begin to see that trial in the light of His greatness. And by the time we get done praising the Lord and worshiping Him and the importance of doing it verbally, doing it out loud, and then pretty soon we're seeing that blob in the light of the greatness of God's power. And all of a sudden, now we're seeing in its proper perspective. So this praise and worship is a very key and important part of the Christian life. And some of you sit in this room and you say, what in the world? Does this man have a grasp of the obvious or what? Because you've always got worship music going on. You are always singing a worship song. You've got that whole thing happening all the time in your Christian life. Then there's another group of people who hardly have that as a dynamic at all. Everything is happening between them and God in the light of God's Word. Most of it is internal. Nothing's getting communicated. And that's the type of person that has to realize how important it is to stop and give the Lord praise because He's worthy of it, but because it does something good in our lives as well. Well, let's close tonight. Just kidding. <laughs> Long introduction, huh? So Psalm 31. David begins here again with a prayer for deliverance and for protection from the Lord in the light of the trial he's in. He says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Sooner the better, Lord. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. And so be my solid rock in this trial and, and be my defense. He said, for you are my rock and my uh, fortress. And so he begins now this verbal confession concerning the Lord. He's, he's called on God to deliver him, and now he's going to verbally confess the greatness of the God that he has asked for deliverance from. For God's sake? No, for his sake. God already knows. God isn't, you know, like uh, people going to Colorado to find themselves. He, he's very confident in who he is. This is for the sake of the psalmist. For you are my rock and my fortress. David had a need to say that to God. He had a need to be reminded of that in his own life. He said, therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. For your reputation's sake, Lord, keep your word. Be faithful to your promises to me in this trial. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid uh, for me. And so he's depending on God's strength to deliver him from this trap that they had set for him. Into your hand 
I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So again, we see him. He's fleeing from Absalom, leaving everything behind. And these are the things that he begins to profess concerning God so that he can maintain perspective. It is beautiful there in verse 5 because we recognize the phrase elsewhere in the Bible, two other places where David declares by the Spirit of God, into your hand I commit my spirit. And we recognize it from Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, whereas he was being stoned to death for being faithful to declare the truth to uh, the Jewish leaders concerning Christ. As he was being stoned to death, he said... uh, Father, basically forgive them. They don't know what they're doing and, and uh, you know, don't put this sin to their account. And then he cried out, into your hand I commit my spirit. And, of course, that was one of the things that Jesus spoke at the moment of his death upon the cross. And so the same Holy Spirit was on David and all of this, also upon Stephen later in the history of God's people, and then also upon our Savior while upon the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, and but I trust in the Lord. So here is this expression of trust, fleeing for his life, but he's expressing his trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet on a wide place. Now, wide place. You ever... um, uh, sometimes you, in Israel, you can see pictures of a, a, a creature called an ibex. It's a mountain goat, and it, it walks up the sides of mountains where it's got like a path this wide, very narrow path. So you look at that, and that's great for an ibex. And God can make us, the Bible says he can make our footing sure even on that kind of, of a setting. But a wide place is a place that's it's broad, it's a safe place to be. That's where I like to be if I'm looking like down some kind of deep ravine or whatever. I don't like to do it from 18 inches on the side of that. You ever seen the pictures of that deal where they got like the Grand Canyon or something like that and you can walk out way out there and it's all glass and look down, all that... I would pay not to do that. Some people pay to do it. I would pay not to do that. And uh, so I like this, lots of ground under my feet. And so that's what he's talking about is, Lord, he's confessing to the Lord. It looks like everybody thinks I'm on shaky ground, but they are, in fact, the ones that are on shaky ground because they're up against you. God, you called me to be king. You said Solomon was going to follow me is the next king of Israel. I know that these people, whatever they may try to do to me, they're not going to make a liar out of you. So it all looks like, it, it looks like the act, exact opposite of what it is. They're on the shaky ground, and I, my feet are set on a wide place. And then he cries out to the Lord, very, very difficult trial that he's in, and he's just honest with the Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. You can always tell God the truth. It's in Psalm 60, obviously, but you can, uh, it, it's a good thing to, well, let's put it this way. In Psalm 62, 8, and when we get there, we'll, uh, I'll point it out to you, but it, t- it talks about the, the fact it says, pour your heart out to the Lord. 
And the word pour there means to spill. I came from a home of known spillers. We had two, my twin brother and I, we were the best at it. And then we had two younger sisters and all. I don't know how many dinners we had that didn't involve the spilling of milk and, and when we couldn't afford to spill anything. And, uh, but it would get spilled and then there would be an attack over that and all that. But enough about my problems. So we were spillers. And so the idea, when he says, pour out your heart to the Lord, the idea is pour everything out to him. I mean, if you're in a rough spot, let them know in, in the language that you know. Don't, I mean, no profanity or anything, but I mean, just in the whatever vocabulary you have, be honest with them about that. Be open with them about that. And just tell him everything. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body... For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. He's talking about the physical toll that this trial's taking on him. This is going to be the death of me, God. This is, this thing is going to, is aging me years by the day. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all of my enemies. But especially, so, uh, but especially among my neighbors, and I am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. So he's talking about the emotional toll, the physical toll uh, that the trial was taking on him, and then the public humiliation that this was. I mean, you think about that. I mean, we, you deal with people who, like David, here he is. He's been the king of Israel now for decades. And he's deserving of respect for the position. And then now on one day, here he is, his name is Mud, he's running for his life and the whole thing. And, and, and now he, he, you know, he speaks about this uh, humiliation of so public a betrayal that's happened in his life and the pain that that caused him as well. He said, I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. And when David fled the city of Jerusalem from Absalom, everyone in the city had to think, all right, we got him out of this city. Now it's just a matter of killing him. We will never see him again. And so David says, they've already got me replaced. I'm already a forgotten man, and I am like a broken vessels for I, a vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. And so the danger that this trial was in his life, it was a life-threatening situation. He knew it, and he knew they wouldn't be satisfied until they died, uh, until he died. When you get to the end of verse 13, you just think, boy, I'm sure glad I read the Psalms this morning in my devotion. And then it's like an explosion occurs in verse 14, because here's where the praise begins to, to start. And he's just talking things over with God, just talking, just talking, just talking with God, talking with God. And then, boom, this thing happens. Now he starts to, things flip. Now he starts to see, instead of seeing God in the light of his circumstances, he starts to see his circumstances in the light of God. And he says, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. All right. Somebody just ate some spinach, spiritually speaking. And it's just the dynamic of what's happening between him and God. He had a need to say, I trust in you, O Lord, in the middle of that trial. 
And it feels good to say that. And it does something good in our spirit. We're not just a physical being as Christians. We have a spiritual man inside of us that's as, as real as our physical being that has a need to communicate too, has a need to be uh, in, encouraged as well. As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Wow! What happened to this guy? The power of praise and what it does in our lives after it blesses the heart of God. He said, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and those who persecute me. He's talking just a couple of verses earlier about the fact that he's as good as dead and they've got him replaced and it's just a matter of time. Now instantly he's rethinking the whole thing. It's a wait a second. God numbers my days. These people don't number my days. Something very good is happening in David's life. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked, let them be ashamed of what they've done. Let them be silent in the grave. And let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. And then he gives the Lord some praise for his goodness. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man, and you shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, so here he is, he's regretting what he was said earlier or felt earlier in the light now of what praise and worship has produced in him the perspective that it's brought. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. And then David cries out, Oh, love the Lord, all you saints. So now, now, now he's gone to preaching. So this guy's gone from worshiping the Lord himself, and I mean, he's feeling it, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a child of God. Now he's going to put a choir together, get everybody understanding this about the Lord. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart, all you who hope. In the Lord. And so this beautiful, beautiful psalm, again emphasizing to us the importance of articulating our praise and our worship to the Lord. Now, Psalm 32 is a psalm, uh, the song of the forgiven. And so it is the second of seven psalms uh, in the uh, book of psalms that, uh, uh, that deal with the subject of uh, repentance. Now, David... Uh, is known, uh, I mean, wonderfully so by a couple of different titles in the Scripture. He's known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's known as a man after God's own heart. And, uh, and yet he wasn't a perfect man. And there was one particular chapter in his life, you know, in particular, um, where he really uh, sinned and failed mightily. And it had to do with when he was again a little bit older as a king and he took 
Uriah the Hittite's wife by the name of Bathsheba. Uh, While Uriah the Hittite was out fighting on the battlefield for David and for the nation of Israel, he brought uh, Bathsheba into his palace and he committed adultery with her. And then as if things, you know, once you make a mistake, uh, the best thing to do or to sin is to confess that and not compound it by trying to deal with it in some kind of carnal way, the way that he does. So he tries to do a cover-up on it and, uh, and essentially orders the death of uh, Uriah the Hittite uh, while on the battlefield. And so he's guilty also not only of adultery but also of murder. And both of those were capital crimes under the law of Moses. So he commits these, these, these terrible acts that were so much not like him, but beware when we think we stand, lest we fall. There were reasons for that, but we're not going to get into that tonight related to uh, the psalm. And so what Psalm 32 does for us is it gives us what is really a priceless glimpse into the heart of David between the time he committed those two sins And the time that Nathan the prophet came to him from God and confronted him with his sin some eight or nine months later, uh, just previous to the birth of the child that was was produced by that adultery. And so there there is that season of several months where David did did these terrible things that he did, these terrible sins against God and against other people. And, and it really violated his witness before the Lord and a lot of different things. And to look at him outwardly, when we look back in the historical books, there's no real revelation in terms of what was happening inside of him. And to look at him outwardly, you know, the next day he got up and he was the king of Israel still. And he gave all of his orders, and he did, and he was still functioning and all of that. And you could look at David's life and say, man, he just got away with murder. He just got away with adultery. And he just gets up and just goes on like nothing has happened. And what nobody knew except David and God and now us, because the Holy Spirit was behind Psalm 32, we realize that God wasn't letting David get away with anything in his life. God had brought such deep, powerful conviction on his life for his sin until the day that he confessed that sin and, and he repented uh, of, of that sin. And so this, it, this beautiful insight into all of that and, again, the heart of David uh, in, in all of that and how miserable God made those nine months, uh, you know, until he did the right thing concerning it. Now David describes in verse 1 the, the blessings, uh, blessedness of the man whose sin or transgression is forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Can I get an amen? <laughs> what a one. It's just like, I just want to call the worship team up right now. Any, okay. Any of you ever had to ask God for forgiveness? Okay. All right. How blessed is it to be forgiven tonight? I remember when I was a new Christian. That's been decades now. So the statistics, I don't know what they would be today. 
But I remember reading it was either a psychologist or a psychiatrist, some expert in mental health, who had said, if we could find an answer for guilt, we could release 80% of the patients in our state hospitals. And I read that and I thought, I believe that. Because I grew up with a person who I loved so much in life. And I watched what the guilt of one or two decisions early in her life, the price that she paid for that all of her life. And it was a sad thing to watch, but it was a powerful, powerful lesson. And praise the Lord tonight in this room and anywhere in the world, there is a solution to guilt. And it is to put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And there is no sin that is greater, no lifetime of sin or world of sin that is greater than the sacrifice of Jesus upon that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. As the old saying goes, there's none so good that they don't need to be saved and there's none so bad that they cannot be saved. And where in the world would we be if we could not have forgiveness from God? And I'm a person who walks in God's forgiveness related to who and what I was before Christ. And you know, you don't have to sin like David sinned. People do. And if that's your history, if that's your background... There's forgiveness for that. But sometimes a person can be a person that, like the person I'm talking about from my own life, where the sin or the wrongdoing wasn't something that everybody else would like raise their eyebrows over and, and say, tisk tisk tisk. But you can do a relatively small thing and be a person with a very, very tender conscience, and it can destroy you. We all need forgiveness, the forgiveness that comes with putting our faith in Christ and then to be confident in the forgiveness that God gives to each one of us when we will confess our sin to Him, ask for forgiveness, and know that as we do that, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I cannot tell you, and, and I know you. if you were up in my place, you could say much the same thing concerning your own life. I don't know what kind of a person I would be today in front of you if the God that I know and that I love was not a forgiving God. If I could not entrust the sins that I committed before coming to know Christ and the sins that I have committed since to Him to receive His forgiveness, to learn what I needed to learn from that failure and then to determine in the power of the Holy Spirit to handle it in a different way the next time, if I was not able to lift those things up to the Lord and move forward with a fresh start, I would, I would just be buried under my guilt. And, and so when the psalmist writes here, we all recognize it. I think you in your own life as well. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Yeah, but you know, I'm driving a car that's 15 years old. You are rich if you sit here tonight and your sins have been forgiven.
That makes a person a rich person. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were given in order as a kofar for sin, a covering for sin. So the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament didn't even wash sin away. It just covered it. And David was happy with that. He praised the Lord for that. In the New Covenant, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our sin is washed away. He remembers it no more. It's not just covered. So, wow! Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And that is a blessed man and a blessed woman. He uses three different words here for sin. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And he does it on purpose. God forgives transgression. You know what transgression is? You say, I don't know, but it sounds bad. Well, it is. Transgression is different from sin in the Old Testament in that transgression speaks of knowing better and doing it anyway. And David knew better. And he did it anyway. Sin speaks of, much in the same way as the New Testament, it means to miss the mark. It means in a situation where we're in a situation, we're trying to do the best that we can. We miss the mark, which is perfection. We don't do what we ought to have done in that situation, and so we sin. But it's not a deliberate rebellion against God. And then iniquity just means to be crooked. And so where we're going along in our life and we recognize that how I handled that situation was not on the straight and narrow of God's way, I handled that in a crooked way. Now, why would David use all three of those words in the context of God's forgiveness except to communicate that God forgives all of us? And sometimes we can think, oh, God, I can take and turn to the Christian bar of soap First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I can take and avail myself of that bar of soap, spiritual bar of soap, as it relates to sin. But I can't do that related to transgression because I knew better and I did it anyway. Yeah, but why do you want forgiveness? except that you are convicted of the transgression as much as you are of the sin and wanting to be forgiven of that. Your heart is broken over it and you want to be restored into intimacy with God. So it's all there and God is willing to forgive the transgression as much as the sin and as much as the iniquity. We give these things categories in our minds. With repentance and confession of sin, if we confess our sin, again, as, as John wrote in First John, it, it's more than just a verbal saying. Okay, uh, you know, I spent a little time in Roman Catholicism, so I'd go into that booth on Saturday night or Saturday afternoon, and I would confess my sins in there. And, and so, it, but it means more than, and then I'd get so many Hail Marys and so many Our Fathers, and I would have them said before I even got to the altar. I could say a Hail Mary faster than you could say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 
I mean, just a kid just going through the motions on things. And so, but, uh, but this, th- this whole thing of confession where it means to see it the way that God sees it. And you look and you say, God, I see this sin the way that you see it. And why do I see it the way that you see it? Because your spirit hasn't given up on me and you're helping me to see that. And so you're at work in my life. And so let's deal with this transgression, deal with the sin, deal with the, in- the iniquity. He said, when I kept silent, looked like David was getting away with all of his sin. And he talks now about those eight or nine months when he refused to confess his sin to God. He was living in the guilt. It was torturing him, the whole thing. And he said, when I kept silent, he wouldn't confess it and ask for forgiveness. My bones grew old. The physical impact that it had on him, it aged him. And, and that's what it can do, unconfessed sin. It just, it can age us. For day and night... Um, no, no, uh, through my groaning all the day long, the emotional toll. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. God was just keeping that conviction so strong on him, that discipline whom the Lord loves, he chastens. God was just really keeping him under his thumb to bring conviction. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And so what's in a drought, what happens? Everything's dried out. So he's talking about his life spiritually. He said, my spiritual life with God just evaporated. It just turned into the driest thing imaginable. And that was hard for David. When Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin concerning the adultery with Bathsheba and also the death of, of Uriah the Hittite, and, and Nathan spoke to him, and he said to him, David, you are the man. And, I, and I'm convinced David would have rather died a thousand deaths than to hear that spoken of his own life and what his life and his decisions had meant to the reputation of, of God as well. And so he said, my vitality... My relationship with God is completely dried up. And then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. So now he moves into the solution. No hiding anymore. I confess my sin to you. I haven't hid my sin. No more hiding it. No more excuses. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That was God's response and his response today. And we say, praise the Lord for that. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time where you may be found. And so now he talks about what uh, the result of the confession of his sin to God and how his relationship with God was restored and all of the vital dynamics of it. And so as he speaks here, for this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time where you may be found. He, there was a return to confidence in prayer to the Lord. You ever tried to pray to God when um, you're living, whether for five minutes or five weeks, living in deliberate, willful rebellion against God? How? How do the, how those prayers go for you? You go to the family reunion. You're the only Christian in the family. Everyone knows it. 
I hope they don't ask me to pray for the meal because I'm in no place to even pray for the meal. Or you go around somewhere in a church or something, I hope nobody asks me for prayer because it will be the most halting, stuttered prayer in the history of the world because I know I'm not right with God. And one of the great blessings about getting right with God is that communication opens up again. We're confident in, in our prayers to Him. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come uh, near to Him. That confidence in God in crisis, that return to Him. God, You're going to take care of me. You are my hiding place and You shall preserve me from trouble. And so all this beauty of the confidence that a child of God has in a relationship with God, it returned to Him with that confession of sin and repentance and You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And then David said, I will instruct you, or the Lord spoke to David, and God promising uh, to instruct and to guide David once again, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Now you look at that in verse 8 and you say, all right, that's, that's good. That's pretty good. That's, that's got to be good. I don't know how good it is, but that's got to be good. It's right there in the psalm. How valuable to us is it when we have flubbed big time and God says, I still have a plan for your life. I'm still going to lead you and I'm still going to guide you. I'm not through with you. Now, you would have thought God would have been done with David at this point. Because we underestimate the greatness of God's grace in other people's lives and in our own lives. You look at that so often when we underestimate Him in our own life, we would do so as it relates to other people's lives too. God's grace is so underestimated. This had to just be like somebody gave him a cold drink of spiritual water. David, I still have a plan for your life, and I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the, like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come to you. In other words, David, stay close to me now so I don't have to bridle you in, in order to lead you in my will. The best way, he said, is I want to guide you with my eye. You ever have, like, if you're on a work crew with somebody or you, you, there's somebody that you know well and you're in a situation and uh, all you have to do is just look at them and then they'll look, their, they'll, their eye will go down over here and then your eye will go down. You'll realize, okay, I need to grab that thing over here and move this here. And the communication is all happening through the eyes. Nobody needs to even say something. And, it, and that kind of communication uh, occurs because people know one another super well and they're close enough to see the communication by the eye. And so God is saying, David, now you stay close to me so that I can guide you with my eye. And it was something that they recognized as a, a way of communicating something in the culture. David, I don't want to do what I've just done to you and having to bridle you and all of this kind of stuff in order to get you into my will and, and to speak to you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked uh, David says. You believe that? I believe that. 
Never ever watch uh, television. Just kidding. Uh, but never ever watch most of what's on television for sure. But you get all these things in this world that we live in and all the television stuff and then all these people and then all everybody's tweeting like I really care about whether you had halibut or salmon for lunch. But somehow they think they're so important that we're all interested in that. And I've cut my, the, the people that I receive tweets down from like down from about 800 down to about 300. I'm really cutting, <laughs> cutting way back. I wouldn't know how to get a tweet. Uh, to save my life. And it doesn't make me a better person, but I just don't know how to do that. So, but you've got all these ways that the world is constantly putting the wicked in front of us and saying, look at the life that they have and the life that you're missing out on. And David said, you're not missing out on anything. He had been in the place of the wicked for nine months and, he, and David was essentially saying, whatever is this big a PR promotion to make it look like it is one thing, David is saying, I can assure you God is not allowing them to enjoy themselves nearly as much as they're giving off that they are. And that's the truth. And it's good for us to hear that and to realize that so we don't get sucked into the propaganda machine. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all of you upright in heart. And so he gives this great praise and thanksgiving to the Lord and uh, the lessons that he had learned by uh, receiving God's forgiveness and and uh, getting right with God once again. And so he lays all of this uh, out to us. And so uh, just the blessing of it. And I just want to say, related to this particular psalm, I want every single person to know that God is a forgiving God. And, and He is magnified in the fact that He is that. Now, we grew up in the United States of America, so we have a Christian heritage. People say, oh, we don't have a Christian heritage. We have a Christian heritage. <laughs> just... Go to other parts of the world with no Christian heritage and then come back. We've got a Christian heritage here. And there's a lot of advantages to that. And there are disadvantages to that as well. And you know what one of the disadvantages is? Is we grow accustomed to truths that we should never grow accustomed to, that we should never lose an awe regarding and as Christians, we can begin to just take the fact that God is a forgiving God for granted. You know, he, does, he didn't need to be a forgiving God. He could have been a one-strike-and-you're-out God. But this is the God that He is. We are recipients of that, and it produces great praise and worship in our hearts toward Him. And then in Psalm 33... In this particular psalm, we've got a, what, a psalm that I consider to be a celebration of the providence of God. And what providence speaks of, it speaks of God's uh, involvement, His loving and His wise involvement in human history, but also in individual lives. And the way that works for me in my mind is that He rules over and he overrules all for his purposes in this world. 
whether internationally or nationally or individually. You want to know what one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible that speaks of the providence of God, His ability to rule and overrule all things for His purposes? It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. God is, is uh, his, his providence is something, it does something wonderful in my life. I just, I, it, it gives me, gives you the ability to rest in the chaos of this world, realizing that He is going to make, He is going to overrule everything in this world, and He's going to rule over everything in this world, and rule, overrule and rule over everything in our individual lives to make it serve His purposes. So then this thing happens in my life. And I look at it and it would make me frantic or it would, you know, alarm me or something like that. And I pull back into the providence of God and I say, God, I just recognize that You overrule all things for Your purposes and You rule over all things and You're going to work this together for good in my life and you get to define what that good looks like. I just know that it looks like Christ. And that's the important thing to realize related to Romans 8.28. We remember, we remember, memorize verse 28, but then verse 29 is the context of it where he tells us what he works all things together for good toward, what that good looks like. You've got a lot of Christians who look and say he works all things together for good. And so, by the way, this is you've come to church here tonight, and just to celebrate that, I'm going to be like Oprah on behalf of God. There are a whole parking lot of Lamborghinis waiting for you out there. Plus $250,000 in each one of your bank accounts that you're going to go home to and discover tomorrow is there. So we have these funny ideas about what good is going to look like. But the good that he says, he says, I'm going to work all these things together for good. And talk, then he talks about being conformed in the image of Christ. These things are worked together for good and that he makes these circumstances make us more like Christ than we would otherwise be or we ever would have been without them. So the providence of God. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to Him with the instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. And so He's calling on us to praise the Lord with our voices, to praise with instruments, to sing a new song to Him. Why do we have a need for new songs? We're thankful for Mike and the worship team and Samuel, and they're always teaching us new songs. Why is it important to sing a new song to the Lord? Because every day, every week, we're in a place we've never been before in our relationship with the Lord. We need a new song to sing to the Lord. So praise the Lord for those that God gives these new songs to that are just right for us to sing. Play skillfully 
with a shout of joy. And so the, the playing of the instruments to be played skillfully and then with great reality, the shout of joy in, in singing forth, for the word of the Lord is right. And so here are the reasons for praise. They always have a reason for praise because God's word is dependable and all of his work is done in truth. In other words, it's always righteous. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Just praising the Lord as the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's given boundaries uh, to, uh, to the seas. And then the Lord brings the counsel, and, and here is the providence of God over the affairs of men. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing, and he makes the plans of the people to no effect. And so God steps in where people are planning wicked things and, and wicked devices upon the earth and all, and God will step in and he will foil the plans of ungodly men. And you see, that's what history is. You just say, why is isn't good defeated? Why isn't godliness defeated? How many times over and over again in history have great armies, great amounts of money, great amounts of power risen up out of wickedness, endeavoring to make goodness and, and godliness and a faith in God a thing of the past? Why do they always end up in a heap in history and then people turn back to God. Righteousness comes back on and is newly appreciated once again. Why is that always the cycle? Because God is involved in the affairs of men. And he makes it so. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And so God's word is going to have the final say in every aspect of human history. All you have to do it in terms of providence. We have some of the greatest um, encouragements related to providence uh, as Christians today. I mean, here we are this evening, and we look at, okay, what the Word of God says geopolitically about the last days, that Israel's going to be surrounded by enemies, and there's going to be a great enemy out of the north in, in Gog and Magog, where Russia is north of the Caucasus Mountains. They're going to ally with uh, the, what is modern-day Iran and then several, many other Islamic nations there in, uh, in the Middle East, and they're going to attack Israel. And, and here today, Russia has thumbed its uh, proverbial nose at uh, the United States of America this week and said, I don't care what you guys think, we're going to arm Syria, do whatever we want. Tremendous provocation being directed toward Israel to either do something with Syria or to take uh, out those uh, nuclear reactors in Iran, which then could cause this whole Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, scenario to unfold. And it's all just sitting there. I mean, the whole, it's, it's just, it can go, you can light one of any, uh, one of 20 matches to have the whole thing go up in smoke and we, we go out of here in the rapture prior to all of this happening or immediately after that. And then he doesn't talk, just talk about it geopolitically. 
But God talks about the last world-ruling empire coming out of the old Roman Empire, modern-day Europe, and that it is going to become the final great world-ruling empire in human history, but it will begin not as a military power, but it will begin under the oversight of the Antichrist as a great economic power in the world, the great economic power of the world. And you look at the problems with the euro, where you've got Greece and Portugal, and just they got done with Ireland, and you've got Spain, and you've got Italy, and all the lines that are forming here that can default and ruin the whole currency. And overnight you could wake up, and the euro doesn't work, and the eurozone doesn't work. The whole thing is in chaos, and everybody's looking for who is a man who can take the reins of this thing and lead us out of it. And we don't care if it's the devil himself as long as it'll put food on our table. And the whole world is set up for it. And anywhere you want to look related to that, you just see God, his hand, it's just working, it's all there, the fingerprints if you want to see them biblically. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and his, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons, uh, uh, the sons of men, and from the place of his dwelling he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually, and he considers or he ponders all of their works. God isn't missing anything as he watches everything that's going on uh, in the world right at this moment. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its strength. Well, why isn't an army, uh, the, the, uh, isn't the king saved by the multitude of an army? Because armies, and you look at history, armies do not determine human history. God determines human history. And behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And so God not only exercises his providence related to the nations and to the world, but also directed toward individuals and those who trust in him. He'll work all things together for good. And then he closes, David does, with this great expression of faith in the providence of God, again, knowing that God rules over all and overrules all for his purposes. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. And so it ends with that great sense of peace in the midst of chaos with the recognition that human history is going to have the, the, a God-appointed end. This is not chaos. This is not out of control. It is humanly out of control, but it is not out of God's control. And what is true of the whole world is true of an individual life. It is our lives will be lived and they will have the end. They will serve the purposes that God has attached to our lives. And he will make sure that they do that, whatever the circumstances of life 
or of the world. God's providence, God wins, He has the final say, and I'll tell you that's something to rest in. Let's ask the worship team to come forward, and I'd like, before we close here tonight, to just worship the Lord with a couple of songs and uh, to Him, and just thinking about this providence, and certainly thinking about God's forgiveness, and nobody should leave this place tonight without being confident in the forgiveness of God in our lives in this light of the greatness of this psalm. If God was willing to do that related to David and the greatness of his sin under an inferior covenant, he will certainly do that for us as well. And let's just give the Lord praise, verbalize it out of our mouth to him tonight so that we can live our life in the context of his greatness as we worship him this evening.